Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture will be Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. This can be found on page 497 of the Bibles in the seatbacks. And if you do not have a Bible, please accept the Bible as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in the days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you particularly for this word, this portion of scripture that, uh, God, we've been building up to for over a year, Lord, that shows us how after your powerful ministry of preaching a gospel of repentance and calling people to believe the gospel and to to obey God and 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 enter into the kingdom of God 
God, that you began your your last week in, of your incarnation, just just uh, before your death, Lord, just preparing, Lord, to face this great uh, moment of agony and grief alone. But God, you didn't do it for yourself; you did it for us. And so, Lord, as we take these next few weeks, Lord, I pray that the familiarity of these stories of these accounts would not lull us to sleep, Lord, but we would be once again by your Spirit awakened to the great price that you paid for us and, God, just the the call that that issues forth for our lives to believe and obey, Lord, and to follow you, Lord, and to, to abandon every other hope we have and put all of our trust in you. And so, Lord, I pray that as I preach this message, you would help me, Lord. You would give me exactly the words to say, that you would make my thoughts clear, that they would be accurate and according only to your scripture. Lord, I pray that every hearer uh, that is assembled here, God, would receive these words as the bread of life, and they would eat them to their own spiritual nourishment and to their own growth in grace. And so I thank you for all of this. I, I commit this moment to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, glad you're here this morning. Last week, uh, you may remember, uh, Gabriel took the pulpit and did a fantastic job. He, uh, he did that. My son, uh, who is in grad school in Idaho, had been in town that week, and he, get, he did that to give me the freedom to spend uh, more time with him, and I'm very, very grateful for that, and uh, g- glad to have a, such a great expositor of the word like Gabriel, aren't you, um, in, in the house? So uh, last week, Gabe told us that Jesus, after his agonized praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, And his determined submission to the will of the Father. Remember the key passage uh, from two weeks ago was when Jesus said, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He said that to his Father. And after all this, he's betrayed with a kiss by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot. And when the soldiers that were armed with swords and clubs stepped forward to seize him, we read that the other 11 disciples scattered. They just took off. They, they abandoned Jesus. And now, Jesus had not only foreseen this, but he told the disciples that that was exactly what was going to happen. He told them that over their own boasting. So bound and surrounded by soldiers, Jesus was led away to his trial. Now Luke tells us in his gospel that this trial um, took place when they took Jesus to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the currently uh, serving high priest of Israel. And this is why when in Matthew and Mark's accounts they mention the courtyard of the high priest. What they mean by that is the courtyard of his very own home. It's the courtyard attached to his house. And this is significant for this very reason. Where they were holding this trial was illegal, just like in uh, the you know in Lubbock County, the city of Lubbock, the state of Texas, the United States. We have a place that is assigned for public trial, and so did they. And this this home of Caiaphas was not the place assigned for these proceedings. The trial of Jesus, therefore, was more of a lynching than a legal proceeding. The law was violated by the Jews who were holding this trial in several different ways. 
another way is that trials were not, according to the law, to be conducted in the dead of night. They were supposed to be done publicly with the best disinfectant. What's the best disinfectant? Daylight. Let everybody see what's going on. And they're supposed to be conducted where everyone could see and everyone could know what was going on. But there was more than that. The trials were not to be held on the eve of the Sabbath, which is exactly when Jesus was tried by this council. And so Jesus' trial occurred under both of these conditions. It occurred under under uh, nighttime conditions, under the on the eve of the Sabbath. And the reasons for this kind of accommodation are made very clear for us. Mark says something very similar, but if we look at uh, Matthew's account, right before the Last Supper, he tells us this in Matthew 26.3. He says, when, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. So the, a lot of stuff's happening at Caiaphas's house. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Jesus, as we've seen over and over again in the book of Mark, has become incredibly popular with the common people. They're even making distinctions between their teachers and Jesus, saying uh, earlier in Mark that Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. So they recognize this popularity and they don't want to stir up anything. But when we get to his actual arrest, when did it happen? Well, contrary to their best intentions, it happened right at the height of the Passover. It did happen during the feast. So in order to accomplish their vile mission of executing the Christ, while also avoiding the riot that they feared so much, along with all the repercussions that that would entail, they arrested Jesus clandestinely. They did it secretly. They arrested him away from the prying eyes of the public. And this is why the the trial was not just held under cover of darkness, but it was also held with uncharacteristic haste. Now, Rendy works in the legal system. He's He's a courtroom deputy, and he can tell you that when we arrest somebody for the worst of crimes, it may be months before they're tried. There's There's all kinds of things that have to happen. Not so with Jesus. They arrest him in the garden, and within hours, they have him um, on trial for his life. So this happened really fast. And it, just as Gabriel pointed out to us last week, this is uh, we know Jesus told us why this was. The hour of darkness had come. And they wasted no time at all setting the wheels of Jesus' demise in motion. So that kind of sets up where we're going today. But the beginning of our text also gives us another very important bit of information that will blossom at the end of today's passage when it tells us right at the beginning that Peter followed the procession of officers that arrested Jesus, but it says that he did so at a distance and he came right into the courtyard of the high priest. Despite, if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, despite Peter's bold assertion that he would die with Christ, no matter what all those other losers in the band of disciples did, that's kind of his his idea, no matter what they do, sure, Jesus, they'll probably abandon you, but not me. I will not abandon you. I will go to the death with you. And now, where do we see Peter? He's hiding Keep it to the dark. He's in the shadows. He, he wants to see what's happening, 
But he doesn't want to have any personal risk involved. And I wonder how many of us could identify with Peter? How many of us could identify with so many of our politicians today who claim to be religious, but they want to maintain that their religious beliefs are both personal and private? We want to keep our eye on Jesus. We want to hang out in places like this that are private, you know, kind of secluded away from the prying eyes of the world. But we don't want to associate with Christ in ways that jeopardize our comfort or our security. We say that we are one of His, but only in places like this under cover of darkness. But biblical Christianity demands something more. And this has for years been a recurring theme of the things I feel like God has laid on my heart to preach. Biblical Christianity demands something more. My greatest hope in life is that every Sunday we would examine our Christianity and say, is this genuine? Is it biblical? Because biblical Christianity demands a commitment to Christ and His truth that absolutely forsakes anonymity. It absolutely forsakes comfort and ease and security. When Paul is speaking to the Philippians in chapter 3, he, he speaks of sharing in Christ's sufferings and becoming like Him in His death. If you were to read those words this morning, would they describe your Christianity? Jesus, back in chapter 8, told us, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. A genuine pledge of allegiance to Christ and his gospel requires, it demands that we go public. It demands it. There's no options here. We don't have Christianity and diet Christianity. We only have Christianity. And it demands that we go public or else, and please don't think me cruel for saying this, but it's true. If we are not going public, our Christianity is a sham. The old saints, when I was young, used to ask if you were on trial for being a Christian. Some of you have heard this before. But would there be enough evidence to convict you? Could your, this morning, if we brought him in and you were on trial like Jesus, could your family, your husband, your wife, your children, your mother, your father, your closest friends, the people you work with day to day, could they stand here and testify that your religion is legitimate? Could they? Or they'd say, I, I never knew. I never saw any evidence that there was anything like that in him or her. Mark goes on, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. The foundation of American jurisprudence is that a person is what? Innocent until the scribes did not embrace this value at all. 
That rather they sought for witnesses, they, they scoured the crowd, the people, the rabble, to find witnesses that would help to satisfy their bloodlust. That was the whole purpose of the trial. Get some testimony that, that, that would give them the, the legal right to kill Jesus. And again, just like we said earlier, we see major violations of the law of Moses at play. In the law of Moses, the Jews are instructed to let truth be established in the mouth of two or three eyewitnesses. In the ninth commandment, you could all say it, it says, you shall not bear false witness. But when the defendant in the stand is the holy and innocent Son of God, and your purpose is to kill him, what else can you do but bring false witnesses, right? So the phony witnesses brought forward at Christ's trial stumbled over each other's concocted accusations. Now Mark doesn't specifically record what they accused Jesus of, but we have already seen throughout Mark chapter 1 to chapter 14 that the religious leaders have had no restraint whatsoever when it came to making outrageous charges against Christ. Do you remember? They said that he was a drunkard. They said that he was a glutton. They said that he was a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer. Worst of all, they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, for which Jesus told them there was no forgiveness. Other false witness, uh, witnesses arose that morning that said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now this was a little problematic, and here's why. Because Jesus, in fact, they, Mark calls that a false testimony, but Jesus did in fact say something very similar to this. What, what's happening here is it's a misrepresentation of something Jesus actually said. If you look uh, in, everybody turn to John 2 in your Bibles. And this, in the end of the, the chapter, you'll see Jesus, uh, you know, driving out the money changers, going into the temple, driving out the money changers. We're all familiar with that story. And at the end of that uh, account, if you look at, at uh, verse 18, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking, John tells us, of the temple of his body. See, Jesus' accusers had taken something similar to what he actually said to make the authorities believe that he had made a threat against the physical temple. Now, we all know, and even in our country that has a large degree of liberty, if you make a threat against the White House, the, you know, uh, some government court building, they take that relatively seriously, right, Rindy? Is that true? Is that pretty, taken fairly seriously? And so, in reality, he was not talking about the physical temple at all, but he was speaking prophetically about the, what was coming right after this. His crucifixion, destroy this temple, and his resurrection, I will raise it up in three days. At trial, they had added these words. They said, he said he would destroy this temple made with hands. He never said that. And that he would raise up another temple not made with hands. He never said that. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. 
See, to make a threat, as I said, was a, 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 against the temple was tantamount, not just to a terroristic threat, but tantamount to blasphemy. Why? Because you're speaking against the house where the glory of God dwelt. But Jesus was not concerned, as we saw all through Mark 13, with an earthly temple that was destined for ruin, according to him. That was not his concern. He was putting himself, please get this, important piece of your theology. He was putting himself forward as the true place, as the, the, the centerpiece, the one place where, where the true people of God would find the Father and would worship the Father. It was not in some building in the Middle East anymore. It would be in him. And they proved that by their twisting of his words, that they were of their father, the devil. How do I say that? Do you remember what the serpent did in the garden? Did God really say? How often, again, great place for reflection, are we guilty of adding to God's word in our extra-biblical moral standards or religious expectations you know, we say good Christians do do this or don't do that. Or we say worship should be like this or shouldn't be like that. How often do we add to God's word by doing that and add to what he's actually required in the Bible? In the face of all this, this is the most incredible part of this story this morning. In the face of all this, all these accusations, Jesus was completely silent. Unbelievable. Isaiah in prophesying this moment, he said, like a lamb, he opened not his mouth. And this astonished the high priest. And finally, Caiaphas, frustrated, asked him directly about the claims he made. He looks at him and he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, let me explain something here. Orthodox Jews throughout history, even to this day, have great reverence for the name of God. You know, the name of God, according to Exodus, is Yahweh, translated I am. And in those days, they wouldn't even write out the word Yahweh, but obviously I'm speaking in an English transliteration. They would only use the consonants of the word and write it out as Y-H-W-H because they didn't want to profane the name of God by putting it down on a tablet or, or paper. And this is why Caiaphas didn't ask Jesus if he was the son of God, but he implied it by saying, are you the son of the blessed? Christ, on the other hand, he says, are you the Christ, was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach, which is Messiah in Hebrew. And so Caiaphas was asking this, he's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed, chosen son of God? Now listen, this is important, because no one in that room that morning, no one, misunderstood the question that Jesus had been asked. No one misunderstood it. And that's important because when atheists and unbelievers, to this day, go out to tech, try to share the gospel, you'll see this, want to assault our Christian doctrine about who Jesus is, we call that Christology, 
they will often say that Jesus in the Gospels never claimed to be God. That was something that was manufactured by the epistle writers and church fathers and later Christians and popes and whoever else they want to blame it on. And what they mean is that throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus never said, quote, hey, guess what? I am God, unquote. But the entire essence of both his teachings and his actions affirm that very point over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. One of the first reasons, do you remember this, that the scribes got so mad was because he claimed in a healing to be able to forgive sins. Major faux pas. Because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus when they pointed that out, he said, oops, I'm my bad. I, I didn't realize what I'd done here. I can't really forgive your sins. No, he said, so you know I have the power to forgive sins. He heals the man. He says, take up your bed, get up and walk. And that made them furious because it's something only God can do. But he walked on water. He opened blind eyes. He cast out devils. For goodness sakes, he commanded the weather. And he claimed to exist before Abraham was. Those who think that Jesus never claimed to be divine should very carefully consider what happens next in this text. When Caiaphas asks, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? How does Jesus answer? He says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, there's three things I want you to take careful note of here. First, Jesus makes an unambiguous claim to be the anointed one. Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ? I am. Simple as that. Can you get a more direct answer than that? But there's more to this. And I hope you caught it. When Jesus says, I am, in Greek, he says, ego ami. And agoami is so important. You see this over and over and over again, particularly in John's gospel. I wish we had time to go through them all this morning. But what he is doing by, by answering, by not saying, uh, you know, yes, I, I'm, I'm the son of the blessed. But by directly answering, I am, who is he associating himself with? He is saying, Caiaphas, deal with it. You are standing in the presence of Yahweh himself. I am. Now, you might think, well, that's a stretch, Mark. He's just affirming, no, 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 no. Go to the book of John. In the, in the story that happens right before these events, when they go to arrest him, they come to, they come to ask him, hey, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And the words out of his mouth is, I am. And what happens next is very interesting. All of the soldiers fall backwards at the revelation of that power of who he is. He's saying, I am. Ego ami. It's not just an affirmative response. I am is the holy name of Almighty God. This is what Yahweh means. Christ uses this phrase to identify himself over and over with God in, in, in uh, John's gospel, and he does it here. But second, when Jesus says that they will see him seated on the right hand of power, he, like them, shows reverence for the name of God. I hope you caught that as well. But by using the word power... Instead of making a reference to blessing like they did, he said the right hand of power. They said son of the blessed. Instead of doing that, he shows that he, 
the one standing before them, on trial before them, will be granted authority to sit as their judge at the Father's right hand, meaning that he will have the Father's full support and endorsement when he comes to judge them. Third, third, I did that, third. I I did go to grade school, so third. He says that though he is on trial in their courts now, a time is coming when they will be on trial in his courtroom. And that should have made their toes curl. When he comes with the clouds of heaven. Now, we've talked a lot about this this year. This could mean at the end of time, and it may very well mean that. But I believe in the context here, it refers to the imminent judgment on Jerusalem that we discussed in chapter 13, the one that would take place in AD 70. And the reason I say that is because he said to some of them there, you will see meaning that some of them would live to see it. And also, it, he's, he's speaking here of judgment, um, which we know that, that he had already pronounced judgment on the city. doesn't matter. Whichever position you take, it's still uh, he's still saying something about his divinity. So the glory of this statement is too much for the hardened hearts of his, this brood of vipers to handle. And Caiaphas tears his robes. He rips his robes. And this is, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is a biblical sign of either grief or rage. In this case, rage. Caiaphas is furious and he pronounces Jesus to be the worst kind of blasphemer. And everyone in the room, everyone with a vote agrees And they sentence the Lamb of God to death and send him off to the slaughter. And as he goes away, Jesus, the text tells us, is subjected to all manner of humiliation. He's the victim, if you will, of police brutality of the worst sort, as those guarding him strike him and slap him and spit on him. And yet, take note of Jesus' response. He does not cower. He does not turn away. He does not shield himself from their attacks. Why do you think that is? Well, luckily we have the old, old, the whole Old Testament that points us to very stunningly accurate prophecies of the Messiah. And in Isaiah chapter 50, we read this, a, a, a prophetic prophecy of the Messiah in his voice. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So we see Jesus. He's led away. Judgment has been pronounced. The next step is to go before Pilate so he can have the Roman authorization. They can, the Jews can have the Roman authorization to put him to death. But we're not done. What a contrast we see in the last portion of our text this morning. What an incredible contrast between the two main characters. Jesus, we have seen, is falsely accused and yet he is silent. He's abandoned and yet he is courageous. He's confident and yet he is humble. In the light of this Amazing grace and glory that is on on display in the text. We turn our attention again to Peter, the boastful, impulsive disciple who followed to see what was happening at a comfortable distance. 
This is how Mark puts it. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway. In other words, he tried to to get out of the way, so out of the line of sight. And the rooster crowed. As Jesus stands alone... Utterly and completely alone before hostile prosecutors, Peter is keeping to the shadows in the courtyard below. While Jesus is being punched and spit upon, Peter is warming himself by the fire. While Jesus bravely faces all the political and religious power and their wrath of Israel, Peter trembles in a showdown with a slave girl. More importantly, when asked by the high priest who he was, Jesus answered directly, responding, I am even knowing that it would cost him his life. But Peter answered the slave girl's query by stating emphatically, I am not. You see the difference between the Son of God and Peter? Pretty stark contrast, isn't it? I don't know if you caught this in the text, but Mark of the four gospel writers is the only disciple that mentions that the rooster crowed twice. And this, this isn't a discrepancy. You know, it's not something they say, well, you know, we can't trust the Bible now because one says three say once and, and, uh, uh the other say, uh, the other one says twice. It's not a discrepancy because, I mean, think about it. If the rooster crowed twice, we can be confident that he crowed at least once, right? So, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. And remember that Mark's account comes directly from Peter. It is Peter who is probably dictating these events to Mark. So I think we have a pretty good reason to trust this account of the, the two crowing. But why, why, since the other three didn't put it in, why should we have this extra detail here? And, and I don't know. This is entirely speculative. And I want to acknowledge that. So you won't be flipping through your Bible trying to find what I'm saying. I just, I just wonder. When I was us pondering this this week, perhaps when Peter recalled this story, as he's giving it to Mark, he remembered that first crowing, the first time he heard the rooster, and he might have thought of it in from from the perspective of hindsight being twenty twenty. He might have thought of it as an incredible act of grace on God's part. As if God was warning him to remember Jesus' prediction at dinner and to now carefully consider his steps as he proceeds. It just made me think about my life and the highs and lows and the shameful disgraces that so often plague my life. And I wonder how often any of us here have ignored the first crowing rooster at the dawning of our sins. I wonder how often that we are on a clear-cut path to our own self-destruction and somewhere in the back of our head we hear, Cock-a-doo-doo. Do you remember what 
Yahweh God said to Cain as he was contemplating the murder of his own brother back way back in Genesis 4. He comes to Cain and he says, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this carefully, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, he's saying that sin, the sins that so easily plague us, are like a crouching lion just waiting for us to step into the wrong place so it can take us down. And we have to be wary and prepared. And perhaps, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why God gave the grace of the first crowing of the rooster so Peter could go, hold on, where am I going? What am I doing? Anyway, in the text, verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, Peter cannot shake this pesky girl. And soon, not only is it bad enough he has to put up with her, but now she's drawing attention. A crowd is forming. And they're, they're hearing her say, yeah, 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 you're the guy. And they're saying, you know, I think he is the guy. Listen to that Galilean accent. And this attention that is being drawn to Peter comes with incredible risk. See, a few hours before Peter had said, Jesus, I'll go with you to the death. And now he's doing, in just a few hours, he's doing everything he can, everything in his power to avoid being associated with Jesus. The reason is clear. This isn't hard to figure out. What happened? What what flipped the pancake here? This is not hard to figure it out. Everyone in the courtyard had heard the rage in the high priest's voice. And then after the shouting that came from the inside of the house, they saw this man being dragged out, being simultaneously beaten and led away to be crucified. And in an effort to distance himself as far as he can from Jesus, Peter curses and he swears And they accused him of sounding like one of Christ. So he tried to sound like one who was completely and utterly unlike Christ. Now, this was not about Peter dropping F-bombs. That would have been bad enough. But the text, the way the text is, when he talks about invoking curses, it probably means he invoked curses by taking the Lord's name in vain and making foolish oaths. And here's the problem with that. Jesus is going to the death to be under the charge, the false charge of being a blasphemer, while his loyal, I'll go with you to the death disciple is down in the courtyard blaspheming God. Being identified with Jesus, put Peter's life at risk, and it caused him to fear. And here's the the moment for us all to consider. Being identified with Jesus 
puts all of our lives at risk. That is both the promise and the price of the Christian life. He said in Matthew 16.25, Christ said, For whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The liberties we enjoy in America often make us feel like this doesn't apply to us anymore. That this demand of the gospel that it costs you your life just falls on our deaf ears. We have very little concept of losing everything for the sake of Christ and for his gospel. So what we have, by and large, in our country is what I call a negotiated Christianity. We want to follow Jesus. We will pledge in places like this to publicly to follow Jesus, but in our hearts we'll do so as long as it doesn't cost us our life, as long as it doesn't cost us our comfort, certainly if it doesn't cost us our income or if it just doesn't make us look weird. See, but the price of following Christ isn't just a first century reality. It's not only a martyrs only kind of thing. The cost of following Christ is the non-negotiable cost of following Jesus. The idea that it costs you your life is never diminished for any follower of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ bids a man, he bids him to come and die. Every man and every woman in all times who would follow are commanded to drop everything they are clutching, everything they hold dear, and follow after Jesus. Jesus put it so clearly in Luke 14. So therefore, any of you, listen carefully to these words, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my Disciple. So we have to reflect. Have we died to ourselves? Have we died to our desires? Have we died to the overwhelming influence of this world? If we aren't dying daily, not perfectly, because I certainly am not dying perfectly, but if we're not dying daily, if we're not submitting to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we are not true Christians because that is the price. That's what it means. For for Peter, in this moment, reality comes crashing in. Immediately, Mark tells us, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Thank God for the crowing roosters that remind us of what Jesus has said. Thank God for the Spirit of God's corrective, convicting voice. Now let's land this plane. This message, believe it or not, was all set up for this point. I am not here to convince you to be like Jesus and not like Peter. It wasn't the purpose of the comparison. Oh man, I wish that was possible, don't you? Don't you just wish you could say, well, I never thought about that, Mark. I'm going to start being like Jesus. The message that this, this 
the account from Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, the, the, the message that it screams to us is that in our own strength, our own vows, our own oaths, our own brags, our own boasts, our own spiritual pride, all of those things are powerless against the onslaught of the flesh and its fears and anxieties that it produces. What we need, what Peter needed, is the grace of Jesus. The moral of this story is don't be a cowardly screw-up like Peter. On the contrary, believe it or not, the moral of this story is be exactly like Peter. What? The guy who denied Jesus three times? No, 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 listen to me. When the rooster crows in your life, When the Holy Spirit proves his love for you by exposing indwelling sin in you, fall to your face, see your sin, sorrow for your sin, confess your sin, don't deny the shame of it, learn to hate it, turn from it, and cry out like Peter did, to be restored to the face and the grace of Jesus. One of the most beautiful elements of this story comes from Luke's gospel. As he was telling Peter, right as he was telling Peter that he would fall away in Luke's gospel, listen to what he says. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. How encouraging is that? Jesus has been talking to the devil about Peter. And I'm sure Peter's response was, and you told him no, right? (laughs) Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But listen to this, verse 32 should give us all such hope. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Can I let you in on a little secret? Whatever Jesus prays for, he gets. Jesus doesn't pray like we pray. Oh man, I really want that new job. Please God, please God, please God. No. He goes to the Father who he loves perfectly and he says, God, do not let Peter's faith fall. He says, I grant that because I love you, son. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Hebrew says that Jesus, at this very moment, and some of us do not think about this enough, at this very moment... In our history, in his eternity, Jesus is at this very moment seated at the Father's right hand, the right hand of power, making intercession for you. He is calling your name. He is providing grace. He is standing against your enemies and he's doing it right now. No matter what garbage is flowing through your life right now, Jesus is praying for you. So when you find yourself in the muddy swamp of your own sin, cry out to Jesus that he would rescue you, that he would restore you, that your faith wouldn't fail. And that when you turn, you would be effective. You would be effective in strengthening the others. Amen. Would you stand with me? Those of you that have been, we have visitors here, so I want to say this, bow your heads with me. Those of you that have been here for a while know that I am not an altar call guy. I don't, I don't try to make weepy appeals and get you to come down and, and, um, you know, make a big public show. But right where you're at, 
I do feel like I, I need to ask you this. There are some of you right now, and for some of you the rooster is crowing the first time, and you know you know that your trajectory is not going to lead you anywhere good. You are in big trouble if you keep on that path. And it is God's grace that brings the voice of conviction, the voice of correction from the Holy Spirit. Stop fighting it. Sin is crouching at your door and you must rule over it. It is contrary to you. It does not have your best interest in mind. And I want to invite you this morning to very specifically to renounce your sin and cry out for a a shower of the grace of Jesus to carry you, to sustain you, to hold you. And there's another group of people here. For you, you're standing in in a bombed out life where the rooster has already crowed twice. And you are devastated at the shame you have brought on yourself, the shame you may have brought on your family, the shame you've brought on your children, the shame you've brought on the church, the shame you have brought on the Lord. And it's time for you to remember before you ever did the thing you did, before you ever walked in the path that you walked, Jesus was praying for you. He was praying for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And that after you had turned, you would strengthen your brothers. And so to you, if the rooster has crowed twice, I just want to encourage you to not call out for something, but to just receive the grace of God. Say, God, I've made a mess. I have no idea how all these knots are going to get untangled. But I trust you, God, that you are for me and not against me. And that your grace is sufficient for my every need. Some of you, whether it's a first crowing or a second crowing, you may need to find somebody. Find myself, Gabriel, Pastor Dave, other leaders in this church. And you may just need to confess some things. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, our our faults, one to each other, we will be healed. What a great promise. But we have to slay our pride in order to do that. And so I want to invite you, if you want to catch me after the service, or Gabriel or Pastor David, please don't hesitate. Don't negotiate. Don't tell yourself, I'll fix this on my own. Because listen to me carefully, you will not. And I want to pray for you right now. That you would open your hearts, open your hands to receive the grace of God. God, there's not anyone here who is unfamiliar with the sound of those roosters. There's no one, God. God, there's no one here that is unfamiliar with the shame, the overwhelming shame of having by our words, by our actions, denied that we ever even knew you, God. So, Lord, we come to you admitting and owning our brokenness, and we ask you to just come and rain mercy on us. God, we first confess, before we confess to any others, we confess to you, Lord, our sins. And we ask you, Lord, to give us the grace we need 
the grace we need to reconcile with you, to be restored to you, so that we may feed on your grace every day. You are the bread of life. So Lord, satisfy our hunger. You are the water of life, the river of life. God, satisfy our thirst. So Lord, we look to you, we long for you. Lord, let this message not fall to the ground. God, I pray that you would restore your children to your house today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion workers to come forward. Um, if you are here and you are confident in your own uh, examination based on the word that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to come uh, and receive these elements. And, uh, and if you're not, if you are still trying to decide what you're going to do with Jesus, whether you're going to believe, repent and believe, or whether you're going to just try to make your own way and, and ignore his word and his warnings, then we are praying for you. We want you to come to that decision. But we would like to ask you not to come to the table because the Bible says in so doing, you can actually eat and drink judgment on yourself, and we would not want that to happen. And so... Um, but we do want you to come talk to us and let us share the the beauty and the joy of the gospel. But not just that, not just to lecture you. We want to answer your questions and help you to see the beauty of it as well. But for the rest of you, I want to ask you to come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seats and we'll receive them together in just a moment. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you that when Peter, representing all of us, was weak and scared, Lord, you were strong and courageous. Lord, when Peter could not stand in the light of his own sins, God, you took the crushing weight of all of our sins. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the grace that flows from that day till this one from the cross of Christ. And Lord, we pray that in these signs of the covenant, we would never forget the amazing sacrifice and the high cost that you have paid for us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction over you. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.